Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul. Now now stop right there just for a second. Now Saul. Finally, we're being introduced to this man who has had perhaps a greater impact on the church than anyone outside of Jesus himself. We have studied through the Hebrew Scriptures. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. A Jew par excellence. We've studied through the Gospels. We never saw him. Never heard his name. But now, Saul. Shaul in the Hebrew. Now Shaul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling along, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Shaul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Father, as we open up now at at the front edge of learning about this, this man, Saul, the life of Paul, I pray, Lord, that as with every other follower of yours that we have looked at in Scripture, through Saul, through Paul, we might see Jesus all the more. That he comes to realize, and we know this, Lord, that his entire purpose in life is to point people to Jesus. So we pray that will happen in our hearts. We pray for understanding and clarification and and wisdom here, Lord. But we pray also for your grace. Father, pour out your grace on this fellowship, on our friends and family, on visitors, on, on your people, Lord. This morning that we might truly hear your word and respond to it in Jesus' name. Amen. You cannot encounter Jesus and stay the same. Cheryl and I yesterday were privileged to spend the day with a a girl who was 16 years old in our youth ministry when we worked in Virginia. I haven't seen her in 13, 14 years. So long before we, we started the bridge. Her name's Jamie. Had a great time meeting her, talking with her, her eight children. And I just started teaching this morning, and I looked over to my right, and she was sitting right there where Cheryl is. So she was visiting family down in Mill Creek. She drove up this morning to come to church. It was, it was really cool to have her here and to see her. Jamie would tell you she is a life transformed. And not by this guy. She told us yesterday it started for her on a weekend retreat we did at Camp Lamava in uh, in Virginia. 
right next to Camp Wanahakalugi, I think was the other one, but we were at Camp Wamaba, and on a Saturday night, which is the night, you know, to really drive it home, and it's the emotional night, and it's the tearful night, and it's the night, you know, this is where we're going to bring it all together. Well, we were doing what I called encounters. We laid a a cross on the floor, we gave all the students a candle, and we said, uh, place the candle wherever you are in relation to Jesus. Wherever you see yourself related to Jesus now, you put your candle in and then tell us why you did that. One by one, the kids start putting those candles down just to kind of show where they were with Christ. And, And some would be on different places on the cross and some out in the room. And Jamie got up there. This is her first retreat. I didn't really know her very well at that point. And she she took her candle and she went to the farthest corner in the room she could get from the cross and put it there. And she said, I don't even know who Jesus is. And she sat down. Her new friend, Lindsay Shackelford, got up, walked over to Jamie's candle, picked it up, and put it in the center of the cross. And said, that's where you are as far as Jesus is concerned. And Jamie told us yesterday that she went home saying for the first time in her life, I've got to find out who Jesus really is. Let me add one more caveat to the story. She'd gone to church all her life. And she did not know. How many of you have spent time or perhaps years in church and you can say, I don't really know him. I've heard about him. I've read scriptures. I know the name. I know it's a Sunday school answer. Just say Jesus and they'll let you off the hook. But how many of you could say, you really know Jesus? Because Christianity is not about accommodation. It's about transformation. It is not about joining a group and the church or the group or the movement accommodates where you are right now with no sense of change. Christianity is about transformation. You cannot encounter Christ and not be changed. You cannot come to Jesus without at least an expectation that your life will be, must be, has to be transformed. It's called sanctification. C.S. Lewis said it's like going to the dentist. You know, you go to the dentist because you have a sore tooth, and the problem is he's going to find two or three more cavities. He can't just leave it alone. Right? Give a dentist a tooth, he will take several. So, when you come to Jesus, you give him a moment, he will take your life. This is not church, this is relationship. And Jesus wants all of you. And this morning we're going to look at that, talk about that real radical, ongoing change. Hey, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are not. I am not. Nor should I be. And if you've ever found yourself in life saying, well, I am who I am. No, you ain't. There's only one I am, and you're not. (laughs) He is the only I am. The rest of us are being transformed from glory to glory, as Paul would later write. In fact, Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable. And he says, perfect. Anyone perfect? Second Corinthians 3.18, he says, We all with unveiled face, because when you come to Christ, the veil is removed. 
Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. Paul said in Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior our Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And that is not your doing, and it is not my doing. It is something He does by His amazing power. Because you cannot encounter Jesus and stay the same. Let me tell you about Johnny. Johnny was uh, born the son of a sea captain. His mother was what they called a libertine, a free thinker, but, but remarkably she taught him to memorize scripture at a very early age. And so he got several verses under his belt until two weeks shy of his seventh birthday, his mother died of tuberculosis. His father was out at sea in the Mediterranean, so Johnny was sent to boarding school for two years. After that, he was dragged from there to go live with his father's new wife, who he had not met, and lived with her for two years. Finally, at the age of 11, Johnny signed on with his father's ship in the Mediterranean and spent the next dozen years sailing and sinning. In fact, John said he wanted to fill sin to the brim. And he did. He earned a reputation as a drunkard, as a gambler, as a man with a foul mouth. It was said that Johnny could curse for two hours straight and not repeat himself. He ended up pressed into service in the Royal Navy. Worked his way up to midshipman, but he was somewhat of a rebel and tried to desert. They caught him, pulled him back on the boat, gave him numerous shameful lashes, uh, lowered his rank to the lowest rank in the service. That night, lying in his bunk on the bed, he lay there aching in pain and dreaming of murdering the captain and jumping overboard to commit suicide. He recovered. He went on to leave the Royal Navy and join up with a slaving vessel bound for West Africa called the Pegasus. He sailed on the Pegasus and did not get along with the crew. When they got to West Africa, they dumped him off on an island where he himself became enslaved to an African woman who was married to a slave dealer, a vile man named Amos Crow. Meanwhile, his father had been looking for him and a friend of his father discovered where he was, went and got him. Pulled him aboard his ship, rescued him, and sailed back for England. But off the coast of Ireland, off of Donegal, Ireland, a raging storm hit. The waves were massive. The, the hull was filling with water. They were going down literally into troughs of the sea. And as John went down into one of these troughs, he was manning the pumps. He yelled out to his captain. He said, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. Mercy. The word surprised him. Where did that come from? Mercy. And in that moment on March the 10th, 1748, John Newton said, The Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. 
converted that night. He stopped cussing. He stopped drinking. He stopped gambling. Well, that's the easy stuff. Maybe you don't think so. Jesus wants to change that. He changed those things, and yet, though he was immediately converted, he went on to a life of transformation. It would be a dozen or more years before, ultimately, John Newton became a staunch abolitionist against slavery. And John Newton ended up ordained as an Anglican minister in the Church of England. Now, that's only after he was rejected by numerous other churches because he had such a checkered past. Most of you know John Newton because he wrote the greatest anthem, in my opinion, of Christian faith, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Newton said in the Gospel, I saw at least a peradventure of hope. But on every other side, I was surrounded with dark, unfathomable despair. A peradventure of hope. His only hope. Christianity is about transformation. Christianity is about a lifetime of being changed, of being altered, of being ultimately conformed into the image of Jesus. And so we come to Paul. So... Saul. And we begin this morning to look at the transformed life. Again, I've told you this, I'm so thankful for the book of Acts because without it we would have no idea where Saul came from. Suddenly after Acts we would open up to the book of Romans being written by this guy Paul. Well, who's this guy Paul? What's his background? What's his history? What do we know about him? And why should we listen to anything that he has to say? Saul was in many ways... The opposite extreme from John Newton. In that, he was a remarkable man with an absolutely spotless resume. That's what Paul brought to the table. Highly educated in Greco-Roman culture. He was born on the northern Mediterranean seacoast town of Tarsus. So if you were in Israel and you go up the coast from Israel and around the top, you come to the border between Asia Minor and Syria, and there's Tarsus right on the coast. 30 miles north of that is what they call the Cilician Gates, which were these big, it's a huge mountain pass between Asia Minor, Turkey today, and Syria. It was a very well-traveled place, and we come to learn that Tarsus was one of the three greatest seats of learning in all the Roman world. Tarsus, Alexandria, and Athens were considered the places to go. The Harvards, the Yales, they would have been in those three cities. Paul was born there. Twice, Paul will quote prominent Greek philosophers in the New Testament. When he's in Athens trying to make a case for the gospel with those thinkers, the Athenian people. Paul begins to quote Acts 17.28 from the philosopher Aratus. He says, In him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Well, that was a famous phrase from this Greek philosopher. By the way, Paul would discover that using his Greek education was not very beneficial in Athens. And in fact, the next town he goes to on his missionary journey is Corinth, where he says, I chose only to know Christ and Him crucified. Let me tell you something. If you try to go to the world with the world's philosophy, you lose every time. 
If you go to the world with Christ and Him crucified, now that is a peradventure of hope. That is something different. That's something that people can hear and find hope in. So, Paul quoted Aratus. He also quoted Epimenides. I know one of your favorites and mine, of course. Titus chapter 1, verse 12. He said, One of themselves, a poet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, that was Epimenides who said that. Saul, highly educated, was also uniquely a Roman citizen by birth, up in Tarsus. And he will use this to his advantage as he presses forward with the gospel. We're told the story in Acts 22, verse 25. He's about to be flogged. And it says, when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are we to do? This man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. (laughs) The commander answered, I acquired my citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who are about to examine him immediately let him go. Smart guy, Paul. But Saul, for all his education, for his Roman citizenship, was an absolutely devout Jew. Strict adherent to the law. Born in Tarsus, but raised in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Paul was his cultural name. He'll go back to it later, as we'll see. But Saul, Shaul, that was his given religious name. Named after, actually, King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul himself of the tribe of Benjamin. And so Shaul was his name. Educated there in Jerusalem at the feet of the greatest rabbi theologian of the day. A man by the name of Gamaliel. Paul notes that in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, referring to his resume, he says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, like Shaul the king, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Noted Wednesday night that Shaul was probably a member of the Sanhedrin itself. As you'll see in a later verse, he casts his vote with them to have Christians put into jail and condemned and murdered. And we first met him there on the 50-yard line of the murder of Stephen, the martyros, the witness. Stephen, who we've been talking about. Acts 7.58 says when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Shaul. I want to suggest to you that the reason Shaul, Saul, didn't throw stones was because he was above it. It's not that he didn't approve. Absolutely he approved. He was there approving. Yeah, I got your coats, guys. But rather than smudge his prayer shawl, Paul would stand by in approval with his nose in the air, highly educated, culturally savvy, religiously pure. And yet in that moment, I am absolutely convinced something snapped in Paul, in Saul. 
Something not clicked. It wasn't like he began to make sense of it. Something emotional went awry in the heart of this man as he stood there watching the grace and the forgiveness coming out of Stephen's mouth. As he saw stone after stone pelting this man and who in the midst of vicious turmoil said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Thankfully the Lord did not or we would not have Paul. Paul would watch as this man Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and fall asleep. And something snapped. Now, you may notice this in people. Some will encounter Jesus in another person's life and they will find themselves sweetly attracted to Him. They'll look at you. They'll look at perhaps the way you follow Jesus if you're a believer and and they'll say, man, that's what I want. I want that kind of peace. I want that hope. I want that joy that I see in, in my friend. And they're drawn. But there are others who find themselves highly offended. The moment you speak the name. The second you mention going to church or that you should dare invite them. Offensive. The difference is the heart. Some are receptive and some are resistant. Some are open, some are rebellious. It all depends on where the heart is at. I shared Wednesday a text that my son sent me quoting some... A friend of his that called Christians malicious and violent as proven by the Crusades. I told Hayden, ask them why they have to go back a thousand years to find violence in the church. Why, they, why, why do people call out the Crusades? But more than that, in the conversation that ensued was in essence that people will revile something that they know, that they know There's something too, but they don't want it. There's rebellion there. There Maybe you've been there. Some of you who have come to the Lord, maybe before you did, you were one of those who when you heard about Jesus, you were like, "Uh uh-uh, nope. And as I've said to you before, it's remarkable to me how upset an atheist will get over a Christian. If you don't believe there's a God, what's the big deal? Wouldn't it just be live and let live? Saul took the offensive. Something snapped. How do we know? Because back in chapter 8, verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. And verse nine, verse 1 of chapter 9, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Look at that. Breathing threats. Okay, the Greek phrase here means snorting, huffing and puffing, hostile exhalation. Give me letters and I'm going to go get those Christians. This is not a rational breathing. This is not a logical man going to the high priest and saying, Caiaphas, if you will, I'd like letters to go deal with this church issue. No, he is huffing and puffing. He is snorting in anger. And again, why so furious if you don't believe something's true? Why so furious unless there is something in you that feels threatened by this Jesus? Well, verse 2 
Verse 2 tells us he asked for letters from the high priest to the synagogues of Damascus so that he might, if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I want you to note that. Huffing and puffing, he's looking for those who are in his way. Oh no, not in his way, in the way. The way. Luke will use this phrase five times to describe the church, and I love it. The way. He's going to go look for those who are part of this thing called the way. Now, good news. He has to go to Damascus because the gospel now has already seeped out beyond Jerusalem, beyond the borders of Judea and Samaria. Now it's starting to head out to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus' prophecy is already being fulfilled before our eyes. If the gospel's going out, you just can't stop it. It's going out now to Damascus in Syria, the oldest city on the planet. And Paul, Saul, gets word that the gospel is there, and he's headed, gang, the way was getting paved. So he goes after the way. The the word in the Greek, ho-hodos. Ho-hodos, which means a journey. Why would Luke call the church the way? It's a journey. It's what we're on. It is a traveled road. The church is never to be static. We are not an organization at a standstill. Again, not about accommodating where we're at and settling there, but about being transformed along the way as we journey in the road of change. So Luke uses the phrase five times speaking of this movement, this sect of the Jews, Christianity, the way. The first time we heard it used in this way, the only other time in all of Scripture, by the way, John chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How will we know the way? Little W. And Jesus says, I am the way. Big W. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a journey through Jesus. It's a relationship. That I walk out with Him. I go with Him. It's a journey of transformation. And you should not be the same today that you were a year ago if you've been walking with the Lord. And I should not be the same today as I was 25 years ago when I first started as a youth pastor. I guess more than that now. 30 years ago. Whatever. We should be in the process of change. Now, if someone scorns you for your faith... If someone says, hey, you're a hypocrite. I know you go to church, and I saw you doing this over there. You say, you're right. That's cool. I'm still in process. Not a license to sin. But you know what? Christians, more than anybody else on the planet, have every right to say, you know what? You got me dead to rights. I'm a sinner. Yep, I blew that. I was hypocritical. Yeah, I was judgmental of you. I'm sorry. I'm still in process. See, I'm a part of the way. I'm being transformed. And I'll pray about this so that I am not this way tomorrow as I was yesterday and I apologize to you. See that? We're being transformed. And it's the perfect answer. Not defensive. I'm a Christian and you're not. That's why I'm better than you. No. And by the way, I don't hear Christians saying that. What I often hear Christians saying is slinking off in shame instead of saying, look... I don't excuse my wrong behavior, but I am being transformed. I am not who I will be. So forgive me, I'm on the way. And by the way, knowing that we're being transformed, all of us, look around, look at each other, you're being transformed, listen. That should give us incredible patience with all the Christians that we are surrounded by. 
Ever been offended by a brother or sister in Christ? Are you sitting here in an offense right now? Listen. Paul said in Colossians 3.12, As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive. Well, how did the Lord forgive us? Perfectly. We had nothing on Him. He had everything on us. And He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you have a complaint against a Christian brother or sister? Someone not transformed enough for you yet? Pray for them. Encourage them. Come alongside them. Don't give up on them. They are being transformed. Oh, and by the way, so are you. Paul said in Romans 14.1, Now accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Oh, that poor denomination over here. Oh, that poor church over here. They just don't get what we get here at the bridge. Careful, we'll find ourselves holding people's coats while they stone our brothers and sisters. Paul said in Romans 14.4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand just as the Lord is able to make me stand. Paul could write those things himself as a man on the way, as a man being transformed in his own life. Listen to his own testimony. Acts chapter 26 verse 10. He said, this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's why we think Paul was on the Sanhedrin. He was casting a vote along with the rest of the Jewish council, the Supreme Court. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them, Paul says, to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And Saul said in Philippians 3.6, I was a persecutor of the church. Suddenly that resume is not looking so good. Suddenly this high, devout Jewish man is a brutal thug. And yet, a life transformed. F.F. Bruce refers to Paul as the apostle of the heart set free. I like that. And by the way, we talked about this Wednesday, Paul didn't drag that baggage around. Oh, it was part of his witness, part of his testimony. Yes, I'm not fit to be called an apostle. Yes, I was a persecutor of the church. Yes, I did all these horrible things. But he didn't wallow in the guilt of it. He didn't suffer the shame of it. Why? Because Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. But I'm getting ahead of the story. Back to Shaul. He gets his marching orders. Letters from the high priest. Verse 3, continuing on now. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. 
And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? Rick, why do you keep calling him Shaul? Well, that's his Hebrew name. Saul is the Greek alliteration or transliteration of the Hebrew, Shaul. But there's something else here you need to know. Remarkably, on that road to Damascus, when Jesus spoke to Shaul, he spoke Hebrew. Later on, we'll discover that in Acts 26.14. Paul says he spoke this in the Hebrew dialect. He came to Saul, Shaul, right where he was. He spoke with him to him with the language that he would hear and understand as from God. Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? He repeats it again in Acts 22. He repeats the same question again in Acts 26 as he recounts this incredible experience, this encounter with Jesus that changed him forever. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus says? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting my people? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now listen, no Christian is persecuted to the exclusion of Jesus. He feels the scorn. He takes the stripes. Jesus absorbs the blows. If you've ever taken a hit of any kind because of your faith in Jesus, He felt it just as you did. Why are you persecuting me? Philippians 3.10, Paul says it. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. I had never seen this before. Listen, Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of His sufferings. You know what that means? It's fellowship. Which means it's not just my association with His sufferings, but it's His association with my sufferings. That He feels it. Why are you persecuting me? When the apostles were flogged, did Jesus' back ache again? When they sat in prison, was not Jesus there? When the stones hit Stephen, did Jesus feel them? I believe each and every one. As the Christians were driven out of their homes in Jerusalem back at the end of chapter 8. And note this. Think about this. Don't read this as a history text. They were driven from their homes. Think about the pictures of Syrian Christians being driven out of their homes right now by ISIS. People driven out of their country, driven away from jobs, away from land, away from family, away from all that they have ever known. Imagine that being you right now, a persecution so intense that you can't even go back to your home. From here, you're getting on a bus and heading for the border. And you will never come back or find it hard to. And that's what was going on with the first century church. They were driven out of Jerusalem. Guess what? So was Jesus. He felt what they were feeling. For every child who cried, they would not go back to their room that night. For every father who felt lost because he could not now provide for his family as he had been. For every mother who wondered what she was going to do for her kids, Jesus felt it all. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says... 
You know, recognizing that, the fellowship of his sufferings, that he feels what I feel, that he hurts as I hurt, maybe instead of asking, Lord, why are you allowing this in my life? Maybe a better question is, Lord, why are you feeling this? Why are you feeling this? Why why are you hurting when I'm hurting? Such is the love of God. Such is the grace of Jesus. It's remarkable. And by the way, the more we are transformed by the renewing of the mind, the more we will feel it too. Feel what? The sufferings of His people. The more you become like Christ, the more you're going to ache when your brothers and sisters, whether they're known by you or not, are hurt in this world. The fellowship of sufferings. Paul felt it. Oh, Paul felt the pain of his people. His people, Israel. Romans 9, verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's intense. Paul says, man, I would go to hell if it would save Israel. I would take the condemnation if my people could recognize their Messiah. Fellowship of suffering. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 tells us if one member suffers, this is regarding the church, all members suffer with it. Were you upset when Ken Davis went to jail? Did you pray for her? Did you think about her at all? Or was it just another news story? We have a sister. I talked about this Wednesday. Let me just say this to you all here. She is, is being so maligned by the news media. It is pathetic. Oh, well, she's had multiple failed marriages and children out of wedlock. Who is she? To think? She's a transformed life. That's who she is. She's a woman, regardless of her past, who is willing to stand up in the present for Jesus. To stand on the standard of God's Word. And for that went to prison in America. Did we suffer with her? I would imagine those of you who did are probably a little closer to Christ. Because we share in the sufferings of those who suffer. And also when one member is honored, all members rejoice with them. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. This whole fellowship of suffering, listen, is not what we're supposed to do. It's what we begin to do as we set out on the way. It's what starts to happen in us innately. Inherently, we start to ache for brothers and sisters who are being persecuted and killed and brutalized in the world today. Because Jesus does. So we do as well. The transformation, it's personal. This is real. I've spent, I kid you not, 50 years, my entire life, okay, 51, trying to shake off the chaff of religion. Trying to get out from under this idea that this happens once a week. And that's up. That's it. That's good. Recognizing that I am walking on the way. I am on a journey. I'm on the path with Jesus. And this is a daily thing. And this is a moment by moment thing. And this should affect every aspect of my life. 
Not just two hours in a week when I'm frustrated that I'm missing the game. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus feels this at a gut level beyond that, at a spirit level at the very core of who he is. And in verse 5 it continues... And he said, that is Saul, said, Who are you, Lord? Now I think Saul knew exactly who he was. Saul's not figuring this out on the fly. Wait a minute, what? When he says, Who are you, Lord? I've heard some preachers do it this way. And then Saul said, Who are you? Lord? As if he's trying to figure it out? No. No, no. I think Saul knew exactly who he was. And had been struggling over this issue of who Jesus was for weeks if not months at this point. Grappling, wrestling. He heard Stephen call this Jesus Lord. He watched other Christians accept displacement and imprisonment and brutality. And yes, even death in the name of this Jesus. He'd been watching this take place, and on the road to Damascus, and this is marvelous, Jesus comes to a Saul who is a man whose life is an inner turmoil. Who is struggling with this whole Jesus issue. He's breathing out threats of murder because he's so internally frustrated. He can't put together the legalistic life of Judaism that he had known and this, this Jesus who has cropped up in his land. He can't figure it out. He's struggling with it and he is fighting back. Oh, Rick, you're just getting all preacher emotional here. How do you know this stuff? I'll tell you how I know. I will prove it to you. But read on. Verse 5 continuing, he says, Who are you, Lord? And he, that is Jesus, said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, underscores it again. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Now, if you just read that and you're not thinking, you would, you would say, well, sounds like Jesus confronts Saul the same way the Royal Navy confronted John Newton. They pressed him into service. He didn't have a choice. I mean, Saul's going to persecute the church. Jesus shows up and says, uh-uh, you're working for me. And you have no say in the matter. That's not what happened. Now, was Saul pressed? No. Was he prodded? Oh yeah. Yes, he was. This is how I know Saul was in the midst of a major faith crisis when Jesus finally stops him on the way. We have a completion of the dialogue. He he shares part of the story in Acts, kind of like... Some of you will do when you witness. You share part of your story, but you don't remember or share all of it at once. And then some other time you'll share the story again, but it's a little bit different. And then you'll share it again. It's still, there, there are things that you recall. So Saul tells the story. Here in Acts chapter 9, we hear him uh, experiencing this. He'll tell the story again in Acts 22 and again in Acts 26. In the King James translation in chapter 9, the King James translators pull from chapter 26 and chapter 22 and put it all here. At least in verses 5 and 6. Which is why if you have a King James Bible, you're reading, you're, you're probably going, wait, there's stuff left out here. No, it's not. It's in the story. It's just, it wasn't written here, and the translator said, but he says it over here, so let's put it there too. Rounds it out a little bit. Here's how it sounds if you're reading in the King James with a little more modern translation. Acts 9, verse 5. He said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
goats. Kintron in the Greek, cattle prods. Jesus says, you're kicking back. You're thrashing. You're like a cow that you're trying to get corralled and back into the ring. This is what Paul's doing. He's kicking back against Jesus. And Jesus, prod, (laughs) prod, 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 prod. He's directing Saul. Now, if it had been me, I I shared this earlier, I would have gone, stick! Take that! Spear! (laughs) Jesus is just prodding. And these proddings, and Paul's kicking back against it, this is the inner turmoil I was talking about. Jesus calls him on it. Man, it's hard for you to kick back against me. I keep coming at you. And you keep struggling. And you keep fighting back. And I keep coming at you. And you keep fighting back. It goes on in verse 6. And he, trembling and astonished, Saul, we don't see it here, but we'll see it later. Saul says, Lord, what shall I do? His immediate response, right then and there, Lord, what shall I do? Tell me what to do. I'll do it. I'm I'm yours. That's it. Done deal. In an instant... Paul, Saul, was converted to Christ. Now the transformation process would take some time. But he was converted. Even as he had persecuted, pushed back against the body of Christ. And as I said earlier before, some reject Jesus. They push back and some will do it. Listen, those of you praying for friends and family, some will reject Jesus right up to the very moment of their conversion. Saul was going to kill Christians. And suddenly, Paul could sing, I saw the light, I saw the light. He sees the light, blinds him on the road. A split second earlier, he was 100% abjectly opposed to Jesus in total rebellion and now converted. Lord, what shall I do? And later, and maybe this will give a little edge to this verse, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Paul would know he saw it. The glory of God in the face of Christ. Conversion is not a process. Conversion is not the way. Conversion is not the journey. Conversion is the first step. Conversion is instantaneous. Lord, what wilt thou have me do? Transformation is every moment after that. It is a process. Get up and enter the city, Jesus says, and it will be told you what to do. The very moment Jesus was seen by Saul as Lord, conversion took place. And then sanctification began to roll. And sanctification would continue in Saul's, Paul's life all the way down the road, even as it will continue in yours if you are a follower of Jesus. Verse 7. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days interesting. Three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Why why does Saul go blind? This is actually backwards. Usually blind people came to Jesus, and they could see. 
Paul is the only one in all the Bible who comes to Jesus and is blinded, loses his sight. Why? I mean, we know John, when he saw Jesus, Revelation chapter 1, sees Jesus in that heavenly vision and immediately flatlines. It's cool, Jesus shows up and goes, clear! And gets him, you know, he's alive again. But Paul, Saul, sees Jesus and it all goes dark. Why? I think so that the very last image implanted, emblazoned on the mind of old Saul would be that of Jesus. And for three days, he would pray, he would fast, no sleep, and all he could see. Think about that. When you close your eyes, what do you see? You see the images of what you had just seen. His eyes go blind, but he's seeing the image of Jesus emblazoned on his heart, tattooed, if you will, on his brain. A vision he will never forget. God saw to it. He gave him three days for it to get sealed in there. And Saul would later write, as Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He appeared to me. You can't be an apostle unless you have actually seen Jesus with your own eyes. Well, Saul had. And Jesus says in John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up at the last day. Saul saw Jesus. He will be raised up at the last day. And everyone who sees Jesus, everyone who sees Jesus, Beholds Him, believes in Him. Saved. Which is why it really doesn't matter who we're talking about in the Bible, it always comes back to Jesus. Yeah, we're looking at the life of Paul. Man, it's about Jesus. We talk about John Newton. Man, it's about Jesus. Because you see Him. And it changes everything. I only really began to see Him in my transformational process when we started walking together through the Scriptures. And then I couldn't stop seeing Him anywhere, everywhere, every page, every biblical person. Jesus is there. Jesus is being talked about. Jesus is emulated. Jesus is rejected. It's all Jesus. And that's why we talk about Jesus over and over and over here in the Bridge Fellowship because you've got to see Him. You don't see Jesus, you ain't saved. Well, I go to church. That's not salvation. In fact, on game day, it's a drag. That's my second comment. <laughs> It's seeing Jesus. The light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And when we struggle, when we wrestle, when we kick back against the goats, when we push God away more than anything else, what we need is eyes of faith to see Jesus, even if it makes us go blind. For three days, which is the exact same time that Peter and the apostles were in the dark, right? They saw Jesus on that cross, crucified, dying. That image would be emblazoned on Peter's mind, John's mind, the apostles for their whole life and ministry. Three days of darkness, no seeing Jesus until they saw Him again. By the way, Paul will see Him again. And I'm not talking about when he went home to be with the Lord. I'm talking about another time that is fascinating we don't have time to get into this morning. But Paul, I believe, later wrote these words in Hebrews chapter 12. We refer to this often. 
Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, we're going to leave Saul in the dark for a week. We're going to come back and pick up right here next Sunday and stay with Saul, with Paul, in this transformational process for two, maybe maybe three weeks, Lord willing. But this heart converted is now a mind in the throes of transformation and change. And he will be the apostle of the heart set free. He will be the apostle of grace. Okay, I didn't share this first service, but I'm going to share it with you. We're in a weird time. You all know that. Tuesday is uh, Yom Teruah. What's that? Feast of Trumpets. What does that mean? I don't know rightly. I know that all of the Jewish feasts were fulfilled in the springtime and we're coming into the fall. And I know that Yom Teruah is an amazing picture of the last trumpet at the, at the, the trump will sound and the dead in Christ will rise and we will join with them and forever be with the Lord. Yom Teruah, Feast of Trumpets. We know after that begins the awesome days in Israel, ten days of repentance, of, of, of thinking about, of, of really coming back to the Lord. It ends with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And atonement and and repentance in that whole time sounds an awful lot like the description of the tribulation. The seven year period that will happen at some point after the church is taken up, raptured, feast of trumpets. The ten awesome days. Yom Kippur. In the middle of that, Jake pointed this out to me. The Sabbath in between uh, Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah, you know it that way, and Yom Kippur, the Sabbath in between, is Shabbat Shuvah. Right? Shabbat Shuvah. Well, what's that? It's the Sabbath of return. They call it that because on that day, the reading from the Hebrew Scriptures in all the synagogues throughout the world is Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. Oh, return to me, Israel. And during the tribulation, we know there is a massive prophecy of the return of the Jewish people to Jesus. Feast of trumpets, the last trump sounds. A tribulation begins, a return, a massive return to the Lord, culminating Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Jesus returns. Guess what the last feast is after that? It's Sukkot. It's on September 28th by our calendar of this year. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's the one feast in the Jewish feast that speaks of the Millennial Kingdom. Rapture of the Church. Tribulation, return of Israel. Second coming of Jesus. Millennial Kingdom. And I believe that those feasts are at least, at a minimum, representative of exactly what Jesus is going to do. What the Bible has laid out for us chronologically in the coming of Jesus. Oh, you're a pre-tribber? You bet I am. Laid out in that way, it's fascinating. But again, every single one of the Hebrew feasts in the spring were fulfilled literally by Jesus. He was the Passover lamb. He went into the grave for the feast of unleavened bread. No sin. He rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits. Fifty days later on Shavuot, Pentecost, the church was born. Every one of those feasts tied specifically, literally to the life of Christ. And I'm not sure, but that the fall feast won't be exactly 
literally fulfilled. This fall? Perhaps. If so, I won't see you Wednesday night. I'll see you Tuesday night. (laughs) Next fall? Maybe. The Lord knows the day or the hour. Have I told you, by the way, that uh, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teru, is also called the Feast of the We Don't Know the Day or the Hour? Because it doesn't happen until the new moon rises, so it could be on the 14th, could be on the 15th, they're never sure. So it's, it doesn't happen until the moon rises and then the trumpet blows, and that's Yom Teruah. Let me just throw in there that this uh, Sukkot on September 28th is the last of the four blood moons that have been taking place over the last two years. Four blood moons. Oh, I could go on all day. I won't. It's okay. They happened on Passover, on Sukkot, the first and last Jewish feast of 2014. They happened on Passover and will happen again on Sukkot, the first and last Jewish feast of 2015. Wow. What does that mean for the church? Every time we've seen what they call uh, the uh, blood moon tetrad, there has been disastrous results or impactful results for Israel. It's happened. 1948 was a blood moon tetrad over two years. Israel became a nation. The next time there was a blood moon tetrad, over two years, 1967 and 68, the Six-Day War, where Israel took again took back over Jerusalem. Before that, you have to go back 500 years to when all the Jews were expelled from Spain during a blood moon tetrad. And we're in one right now. So there's a lot going on, gang. We need to have our eyes wide open and not just on the touchdowns. That's my third comment and last one. <laughs> We need to have eyes wide open. I'm talking to Christians right and left, and people are saying, I'm, this is dark. This is weird. Stuff's happening. Things are going on. Oh, and by the way, this is the final uh, uh, day, Elul 29, of the Shemitah year. What's that? Every seven years, all debts were canceled. You know what happened the last time we ended a Shemitah year in the, uh, uh, based on the Jewish calendar? We had the crash of 2008. All debts <laughs> canceled. There's more to this than mumbo-jumbo, hocus-pocus, oh, it's you Bible prophet guys. Hey, I'm just telling you what I know to be true. And speaking to what I know is going on in an awful lot of Christians' hearts right now, and that's looking at our culture, our country, our world, and saying, something's up. Something's going on here. I'm not saying that to scare anybody, but I'll tell you what. Jesus is on the move. The way has not stopped progressing and will lead us to a point where the church is pulled out of here. Jesus will then fulfill the promise to pour out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. He will call Israel to return in massive numbers as never seen before. And He will come again to establish His rule and reign on this earth out of Jerusalem, just taking the book of Revelation literally. So my question for you is, where are you this morning? In Acts 13, for the first time, we hear this sentence, Saul, who is also known as Paul. And from that point on, he is Paul. And in his name, we see his transformation The Hebrew name, Shaul, means one who demands. Demanding! 
And he was a demanding, ambitious, striving man, even striving against Jesus, kicking against the goats until he meets him on the Damascus Road and instantly everything changes. And Paul, in this new transformed life, sets aside the demanding man and becomes Paulos in the Greek. Paulos, I love his name. It means little one. He goes from demanding legalistic Jew to a little one who is so thankful for the grace and mercy of God. I will read you this. We'll finish this morning in Philippians chapter 3. After giving that grand and glorious Jewish resume, Paul turns around. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All things, Paul? All things, Rick, would you count your marriage to Cheryl as lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus? Would you really rather know Jesus than your wife? Yes. Sorry, honey. She wants it that way. And Paul says this, I love it. He says, for whom, Christ Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The Greek word is dung, and I'm saying that nicely. Feel free to put any word for that substance you want in there. That's what Paul says. My entire life, every other achievement, every other accomplishment, every other thing that I demanded of myself is dung. Rubbish. Poop. There I said it. He says that's the value of it. Everything else but Christ. Christ alone is worth everything. John Newton, quoting Paul, said, By the grace of God I am what I am. He said, It is certain that I am not what I ought to be. But blessed be God, I am not what I once was. Amen. 1,700 years before Newton, Paul understood that. By birth, a Jew. By citizenship, a Roman. By education, a Greek and a Pharisee. By grace, a follower of the way, who is Jesus Christ. Oh Lord Jesus, Lord we praise You. Lord, I don't know what all is going on here. We see awfully amazing things happening in this world. We are looking at Bible prophecy now, Lord, and and saying, is this it? Are You leading us up to the culmination of these things? I know you said we would not know the day or the hour, but Lord, I just have this incredible sense that we are in the season and this may be, it could be it, I don't know. But Lord, whether it's this year or a hundred years from now, I pray that we would be a people who live like Paul chose to live. Living his life every moment for the imminent return of Jesus. Looking forward to and hastening the day of the Lord. Loving the appearing of His Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be us here, today, now. A people who love Your appearing. And yes, Lord, a people who wake up on Tuesday morning, Yom Teruah, with a little bit of excitement that perhaps... And should we wake up Wednesday morning still on this planet, may we have the same intensity, the same excitement that perhaps... And Thursday and Friday, it's your call when you come, Lord. We know that. We accept that. But we look for it. And I pray that until you come, we would be a people whose lives 
are transformed by the renewing of our minds and our hearts in Jesus Christ. Amen.